Welcome to another Sober Heroes podcast and I'm delighted to have with me Shannon today who is here representing uh, LGBT community. He's over in the US and he's six and a half years sober which is an absolute brilliant thing. So Shannon welcome, how, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. It's uh, it's an honor to be here and to uh, share my story. So thank you very much. Brilliant. So I think we'll just crack on straight away, really. Just sort of give us an sure. understanding of your story from beginning to where, where we are now. Uh, well, you know, because I do, I have uh, analyzed and broken down my story so much. I don't know how far back you want to go. I mean, you I was adopted. Do we want to go back to the very beginning? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, actually, because I can chip in with that as well, because like you, I, I was adopted as well. So start from there. Yes. Um, I was adopted uh, by uh, American Indian mother, um, Lumbee Indian from Lumberton, North Carolina. Uh, so I was adopted into a family of color as a, obviously, a Caucasian boy. Um, I was adopted from North Carolina and brought to Virginia. Uh, where I was raised and um, I wasn't really informed about my adoption until I was probably about 11 years old um, but you know you know if you're adopted you understand probably that you have a sense or a feeling and I think that was the beginning stages of me feeling like there was something different um, later you as puberty went on I went into like the gay world in the 90s which was really really hard um because you know there wasn't uh social groups there was no social media or anything like that so the only people that i had to in the gay community to really um bond with would be adults and you know as a child and teenager growing up in in the 90s um and wanting to fit in uh i found myself kind of going towards uh gay bars and clubs uh to find people that were like me um you know, and then my mother and family finally did actually tell me that I was adopted, which uh, of course, again, I knew. Um, but, you know, it was never really, it was kind of like you were adopted and that's what it was. And there was really no more discussion about it. My family really wasn't one for therapy or deep conversation. So you just kind of dealt with it the best way you could. Uh, when I graduated from high school at this point, you know, I'd already been going to clubs and bars, uh, got a phone call because my adoption records were open when I was 18 and they were to the public. So that meant that my biological family could at this point contact me. Um, it coincided with the time of me accepting my homosexuality and being at peace with myself and finding this joy. Um, at least I thought it was joy. It was really more drugs and alcohol really that was fueling it. Uh, but I got a phone call from my oldest sister and uh, out of the blue said, you know, I'm your sister and you know, we want to have a relationship with you. And I found out that she was one of four sisters that I had wow. and a brother. Uh, none of us had the same father. Um, I slowly learned about addictions and abandonment and issues that they had to go through. Um, and, you know, hearing this information, it was hard because you know, you, you hear their stories about, you know, oh, you're the lucky one because you got put up for adoption where, you know, we had to go live with grandma and we had to go put in foster care and then we were abused and all this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, again, on the other side, I was happy to finally, you know, get to connect with them and understand where I came from because I didn't really feel connected to this family that I was adopted into. Uh, I didn't look like them. Um, I, I knew that I was gay. They were very much not okay with the gay thing. I was raised Southern Baptist, so yeah. we did not talk gay. And if you were gay, you were sent away to be treated in the 90s. That's how they dealt with homosexuality back then. So I didn't want to tell anyone. So lots of secrets, of course, started to build up in my life at a young age. Um, but my birth mother finally came into the picture after months of me talking to my oldest sister. Her first question was, why do you have all these, you know, I would send pictures because of course, keeping in mind at the time, there was no internet. So you would write letters and send photos. And I was into fashion and hair and all these things that I was really kind of coming into myself and getting some sort of confidence, I think. Um, and she said, uh, you know, why are you in all these pictures with girls and none of them are your girlfriends? And, and why aren't you playing football? And why are you in a fashion show? And I told her that I was gay. And I was proud of it at the time. And she says, don't ever contact me again. Okay. Uh, 
that must I have been incredibly I mean, difficult for you to have to go through that whole adoption thing and then suddenly have some form of relationship for her to then say, I don't actually want to talk to you because of well, because you're gay. Yeah. And in my mind, it was, um, you know, you're not good enough. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't what they wanted. You know, I didn't, they didn't want me, in my mind, they didn't want me at first because I was put up for adoption, right? There was reasons that that happened. And then you wait 18 years and you finally get to see me and I'm like, here I am. And they're like, you're not what we wanted, so we don't want you. So uh, uh, how do you, you know, again, I lived in a Southern Baptist family. How do you go and tell your, your you know, my mother, who I call my adopted mother, my mother, uh, that I was rejected because of my sexuality when she's a Southern Baptist woman who's going to be like, I told you, you're going to burn in hell. So you're like, well, now what do I do? So now you just kind of start, you grab that, you know, that rug and you start pushing stuff underneath it and you start, you know, putting all your emotions and feelings and, um, and it starts building up. Um, so yeah, I, you know, we spoke for a long time. I, four sisters and my birth mother. And then when that phone call happened, there was nothing else. I would call and they would never respond and I would send letters and I would hear nothing. So I was rejected. Um, and this was uh, my senior year of high school. So I was, you know, had a lot of good things going on also because I was about to go off to college. Um, and, you know, my life was gonna start and you kind of hear, especially in the 90s, when you do go off to college, that's when you experiment, you find yourself, and then I felt like I could go and be my true self. And the day of graduation, uh, I noticed that everyone was acting very, very weird, and I didn't know what was going on. So I went through my graduation, as you normally do, and um, I came home, and again, my family being Southern Baptist, don't really talk about our emotions. My mother said, uh, your best friend was killed in a car accident last night. And that's why she wasn't at the graduation. And nobody talked about it. And, uh, you know, I went through a graduation. It was never mentioned. I went through a dinner or, you know, afterwards. And that's what I heard before the R&I grad party. So she said, you know, I, of course I cried. And then my mom said, okay, we'll have a great evening. And I went to my friends and we drank and we did drugs all night. I never went to the all night grad party. Um, so that was like, that's when I learned how to deal with my emotions. I learned how to be what people wanted me to be or what I thought they wanted me to be and then uh, I would then drink or do drugs to kind of deal with my emotions on the other end. So that was exactly uh, your, I went, your type of therapy. You didn't have therapy for anything yeah. growing up. It was just forget about it while you're drinking and drugging and that sort of is a release to a certain extent. Yeah and then to now add more fuel to the fire I was going off to college. Um, I was going to culinary school and downtown Baltimore. Um, so now you're taking someone who has a drug problem, uh, a serious alcohol problem, can't deal with his emotions and he's 18 and now you're gonna drop him off in the middle of the city. So now I was, and what I thought was paradise at the time, I now look back and it was hell because there was no one to stop me. Uh, there were skate bars down the street, I was 18. You know, people didn't ask about IDs back then and the gay world, I guess would be equivalent to maybe young, you know, attractive girls, you know, you can kind of flirt a little bit and you can kind of get what you want. And I learned that um, very quickly that if I wanted to get into a bar, if I wanted to get what I wanted, which was my drugs or alcohol, I might have to do some things that I didn't really want to do. And I, which mean act like an adult, you know, I was 17, 18 going into bars with adult men and I was pretending to be something that I wasn't, but then there was consequences to that and um, I got raped. So yeah. that's, uh, again, what do you do with that? You, you take more drugs, you drink more alcohol and you start having no self value. Um, but then you have to put on a smile because you still have to exist, right? You don't want anyone to know your secret. So it, it just became this uh, double life that I created. You know, there was the Shannon at night and there was the Shannon during the day. And, you know, it's sort of like you're, you're spinning all these plates in the air and you just keep adding more and more to them because the older that you get, the more, the more shit you have to deal with, right? Yeah. Um, and it just kind of kept getting worse and worse after that. So, do, so did um, you, 
do you find that um, in the gay community, as much as, so from my perspective, it is very much the male ego is there and I can't ask for help if my things from when I was younger, I always felt that I just had to be there. And like you said, just put a smile on my face. Is, is that the same with you as, as you said then? Um, you, so you're referring to in the gay community as far as like the, uh, not being able to be sober and, and the shame behind that? Is that yeah, or, or just sort of showing weakness, I guess. Like everyone's there to sort of show their best version of themselves. If you, you're not going to go there and yeah. say, look, all these things have happened to me, I need help. Rather than that, you just want to fit in and you oh, get yeah. that smile. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, and that's, um, you know, and then of course, you know, as my years went on, as I got, you know, into my 20s and further into my 20s, I realized, you know, there was a joke that, uh, you know, maybe at this point, I've now graduated from high school, uh, from college rather, so we're moving on now. I'm back to Washington, D.C., and I've started to create a, a friend, a drug friends, let's be honest, everyone that I hung out with did drugs too and alcohol because, you know, you don't hang out with sober people, they make you feel guilty. <laughs> so you never <laughs> want to tell anyone that, you know, God forbid someone actually is doing something good with their lives and then they're better than you. So, you know, you always wanted to kind of keep on the same playing field. So um, there was a joke whenever we would go to pre-parties before we go to clubs that someone would always have a table full of food. And I'm like, why are you even wasting your time? It might as well be, you know, fake food because we're all doing lines of cocaine in the bathroom and drinking. No one's eating anything. You know, you <laughs> eat at five o'clock in the morning after you've been partying all night long and then you wake up the next day and act like everything's fine. So, um, yeah, I just, I got sucked into it. And then when I uh, became a hairstylist, you know, all of a sudden it was almost like a little celebrity. You know, everyone wanted me to do their hair because I was actually really good at it. Um, even in my most crazy, out of my mind moments, I was still able to focus and realize that hair and creativity really was my passion. Um, but even in the hair world, you know, what do you do? Let's go out and have a drink. No one wants to go out and have a cup of coffee at eight o'clock at night. You know, it was always around alcohol or let's go out and have a cigarette or, you know, hey, do you have a bag of Coke? I mean, it was, that was my reality. And I kind of accepted it because I thought that that was, just the way it was. I didn't really know any different, I'll be honest with you. Do, you. do you find now that it's actually, now you're six and a half years sober, you realize how much alcohol and drugs are ingrained into that, well, just society as a whole now? Yeah, I mean, uh, tell me an event that doesn't involve alcohol. You celebrate with champagne, you celebrate weddings, uh, you know, even funerals, sadly. Uh, there's always alcohol somewhere around and I get it. You know, I have horrific social anxiety, which is so funny to think that I'm a hairstylist and, and be very honest with you, Sean, I probably talked myself out of this interview seven times before I finally said yes to myself, but I'm learning still, you know, sobriety is not something that you get and you got, you know, and you, it's like an award that you put up on a shelf. It's something that you do every single day. And my addiction takes different forms. You know, it's like I can become addicted to anything. Um, but when I, you and I were talking about superpowers, and how I call it my superpower, through the six years of me getting sober, I've learned how to take this addiction and use it to start a business. You know, I throw myself 100% into something. And, um, you know, I don't give up. And that's how I was with alcohol and drugs. You know, if I wanted, if I wanted something, I would stop at nothing to get it. And, um, you know, I've learned through therapy how to turn that around for something positive. I think that's a really important point to make as well. That that ability, because I'm like you. Like when I went to rehab, I learned about cross addictions. So for me, my addictive streaks were always with food when I was younger. And then I was mindful when I came out of rehab that I'd stopped drinking and doing coke. But then the food was still there and sort of online dating, etc., sort of become a bit addictive. So I know that I am an addict, I'm 100% happy with that. But like you, I'm now putting my energy into positive things and I'm going 100% at it. And it's amazing the amount of work you can get done when you're actually passionate about something you do. You might be a bit addictive about it, but it doesn't feel like it's an effort really, does it? No, I mean, it's just like with anything. I so I never went the AA route. And I think that's where people get um, kind of surpri surprised, really, that I didn't go that direction, the 12-step program. I, 
I knew that my issues were so dark and so deep and so embarrassing, really, you know, to be honest, I, I didn't feel comfortable doing it in a public setting. So I got a, a therapist and his name was Ben and he and I worked every week together to get me to the point of, you know, really where I am today. And I remember the first thing he said to me was, after this meeting, I want you to go home and I want you to build a shed. I want you to go to the to the store and buy all the supplies and I want you to build a shed and it's gonna be a sound shed and it needs to stand there and it needs to last. And I was like, I have no idea how to build a shed. He's like, exactly. You have no idea how to get sober either. So why do you think you should have the answers to everything? You have to learn. And I was like, ah, that makes <laughs> sense actually. You know, you gotta get some tools in your toolbox before you can build something. And um, what I also learned is while I built my toolbox over the years, I was able to then apply that to other parts of my life to quit smoking, to, um, you know, quit biting my nails. I mean, that was a huge one. You know, all of my social anxieties, anxieties that would build up, um, you know, I just really wanted to kind of be the best form of myself. So once I learned the secrets and the tricks and how to get sober, I then started to see if I could apply those other parts and it, it worked. It's, it's, um, it's amazing, isn't it? Because I think everyone assumes that to become sober, you need to go to AA, but that, that's not the truth yes. at all. So I had therapy after I went to rehab. I, I did go to AA for a bit and the 12 steps was brilliant for having an inward look at myself. But most of my recovery came from learning about self-development. And like you said, that sort of box of tools that I could use to sort of develop my own self-worth and just generally grow as a person. Whereas yeah. I don't know if you were like me in addiction, the way that you view yourself is so negative all the time that your mindset's constantly just switched to negative. Yeah. I could see, you know, you could show me something that, you know, you can show me a hundred positives and there would be one negative in the group and I would always find it, you know, and that's, that's just, like you said, that's how your mind works. Um, with my sobriety, you know, I really had to, it's almost like an onion. I had to really kind of like peel back every layer and, and analyze it because, you know, again, with me being so self-conscious about my actions, I would overanalyze to the point of me going insane, like not sleeping, not eating. So I had to kind of give myself a break and say, you know what, you're allowed to screw up. You know, you're allowed to get angry. You're allowed to feel these, these emotions because they're normal emotions. You don't have to take a pain pill to, to numb the pain. You know, you're, it's there for a reason. So feel it, you know, and I, you know, Sean, that's when my story kind of takes a weird turn because, you know, I saw your story on Instagram and you were punching it out in the bag and you were definitely kind of getting out some emotions. And I remember having those emotions. I remember because when I got sober and, and the veil was lifted and I kind of saw my reality, because, you know, as you know, when you're drunk, you're in this haze. And if you take pain pills, you're in more of a haze. Um, so when all that was finally lifted, I was pissed. Because mainly I was mad at people around me. Like, didn't you see it? Because I saw it. I mean, I look back and I see it's so obvious. Why didn't anybody help me? You know, and that's where my anger came from. And it was hard because as I was with Ben, my therapist, talking about all these very private things and being, being around friends or family, I would be very angry to think, you know, what, was I not worth it? Did you not see it? But then I now realize that the only person that's going to change me is me. And the only person that's going to take responsibility is me. I can't ask for somebody else to do that. And um, maybe that's how I had to learn. And when I do that process of me kind of working through my anger, I had to step away from everybody. I had to step away from everyone in my family, my friends, and I actually, a lot of them weren't really friends. They were just drug acquaintances, to be honest. But I literally just shut it down and it was me and my husband. And he was the one that was there that listened to me every day when I came home from therapy. You know, a lot of times I don't think people talk about the support that we have, you know. He had to deal with me crying sometimes uncontrollably or, or being so angry and mad and wanting to punch things or wanting to just like let out rage that I held in. And then... When I finally got it all under control and things were going better, my dad died and my father was an alcoholic, my adopted father. And um, that was hard for me because I had gotten sober and I was finally confident enough to kind of let him know how I felt and wanted to talk to him about things. And I just, um, that chance was taken away from me. And we 
he died. So, you know, this is during that time where I didn't talk to any of my family. So I hadn't seen my brother, my nieces, my nephews, my mom, my, uh, you know, anybody in my family. I just had to completely isolate myself to kind of recharge and regroup. And so when my father died, I knew that I would have to face my family. And of course, my anxiety went to a thousand. I didn't want to go. And uh, my husband was like, you have to, you know, you have to say whatever it is that you have to say. If it's just you standing there, you have to go. You know, this is part of your healing. Um, so reluctantly, I went. And the first person I saw was my niece, Roxanne. Um, and I gave her a big hug. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. Your uncle's trying to be the best man that he can be and figure it out. And um, I even actually forgave my father. I stood in front of everybody and I, I said, I'm here to say one thing and that's, I forgive him. And that gave me the most peace uh, than anything is that you just have acceptance and forgiveness is what I found is the biggest healing. Yeah. And, and that's really good point to make because something like that is a horrible thing to go through, but it's really difficult to tell people who've gone through traumas like yourself um, that you have to accept and forgive because then through that process, that anger sort of dissipates. There's always instances yeah. when it will come back, but that actual letting go of it is one of the biggest things to allow you to move on with your life. Yeah. And that, and I'll tell you, it, it's weird because, you know, you carry around this, this weight. It's almost like a cross you're bearing, right? And I've been carrying around with my father for a long time because, you know, truth be told, he left when I was 13. He separated from my mother and I was asleep upstairs and he also abandoned me. And, you know, as you see, and probably you can tell now, there's a history of people leaving me, right? And me feeling this abandonment from people. So, um, you know, I had to make peace with a lot of that. and by me showing up to my father's funeral and saying that I forgive you, um, released this weight off my shoulders. And I literally saw it. I felt like I could like fly around the room. I mean, I felt so light. And then six days later, it all went away because my niece Roxanne, the one that I finally saw at the funeral, who I gave a big hug to, um, died of a drug overdose six days later. God, you, you've, by all accounts have had a really really tough ride i mean to go yeah. through all those things and to still say you're six and a half years sober is incredible yeah thank you very much you know and i and i, I appreciate that because it is you know and, and it's like sobriety you know having the you know my calendar on my phone that says how many days or hours i've been sober i started to look at that again when my niece died because um I didn't know if I, survivor's guilt is a very hard thing. And I don't know if a lot of people talk about that, but you know, my niece was, uh, she lived in the neighborhood next to me. I could walk to her house. She was a mother of two. Uh, she be, went to hair school to become a hairstylist, to be like me. We actually even worked together for a while. So she was like my kid. And um, not to say that my other nieces and nephews are not, but Roxanne and I, we had a bond that was unique. and. You know, while I was trying to fix myself that year, it sounds like she was losing herself. And I couldn't handle it. The guilt consumed me. And I allowed it to because I felt that I deserved it. And uh, she died October 1st. And October 30th, I fell down a flight of stairs and I shattered both bones in my right leg. And um, I woke up with an external cage. Uh, over 500 i'm sorry over 100 stitches 50 staples um and my life basically came to a screeching halt and then i was put back on painkillers and all the medications that come along with breaking both of your bones in your right leg and being laid up for three months so it was i was in hell all over again i went from being the highest of the high to getting control over my life and my addictions to now being in the depths of hell um emotionally physically and uh, it was hell on earth. And, and is, that was. It's, it's a point that life happens and we have very little impact over how that goes around us. And in yeah. even if you're sober for six, six years or so, that it, it won't have any impact. All the impact is you being able to manage things better. But like you said, yes. when things like that happen, it's just shit, isn't it? Like you have to sit yeah. there 
sober and have to deal with that pain for however long it lasts. Yeah, and that's and then, and it's um, and it got worse. And that was the thing; it got worse and worse, especially when you can't move. You know, I didn't when I fell down the flight of stairs. I knew the, the reason that I fell down the stairs is because in my brain I kept thinking to myself, and this is what I would the minute that I would wake up in the morning, Sean. The minute, whether it was to go to the bathroom at four o'clock in the morning, I would think that couldn't have happened, right? That could be real. And then I would be up obsessing about it and thinking about it and what could I have done and, and why didn't I know? And of all people, why didn't I see it? And why was I so selfish to take care of myself and not think about other people? That's what was going through my head at the time. And I realized, you know, now later, much later that I was still getting myself right. And unfortunately, this is how life works. I don't have an explanation as to why my niece died and left two small children behind. Um, but it is the reality that I had to accept. And now on top of that, I had to deal with the reality of I couldn't walk. <laughs> and the medication and the pain pills and all the stuff that I've learned through therapy to hate and to despise, I now needed to just be. And the pain was intolerable. And I had four surgeries and one year. And I'd never even been to the hospital before for anything else than rather like a cold. Okay. So now being in and out of surgeries and being in a wheelchair and, uh, you know, not being able to walk to the bathroom on your own, uh, you know, it, it was really bad. What, what, what but, was it like on the, on the painkillers? Because it's a good point to make that, what was that transition taking the painkillers did you have any sort of wobbles obviously you had all the personal stuff going on but did you feel like they might have impacted you at all um you know it's interesting that i realize about pain pills when you have pain they work they work really well when i was abusing them before i was trying i was just getting high off of them you know that i had no pain except emotional but when i was dealing with physical pain and having uh an external cage i don't know if you're familiar with that is because when i shattered both bones below my kneecap there was nothing to put screws into so they had to do an external cage um so that's why i, I was in a wheelchair for quite some time and then it was you know the processes after that from walking um but you know my husband literally had a chart above my head and we would count the pills and it was a very oh i was very aware of the process you know he would we would count them out and be like there's 30 vicodin let's say and we would he would always double check and and i had nothing to hide and i wanted him to check because at times i didn't trust myself so i made it through but of course there was moments when i wanted to escape but then there was also moments when i felt like how dare drugs take this away from me again like again alcohol and drugs in my mind had won you know they've taken another thing from me and how much more was i going to let them take was i going to let them take my own life like was i going to give up or was i going to fight and that's when the superpower kicked in that i was not going to let this take me down anymore and you know that's the energy that got me to walking again you know when you have doctors tell you get used to your new normal that you're never going to walk again or you're never going to be able to stand for eight to ten hours doing hair or get on and off of an airplane i proved them wrong i've flown back and forth in california the next year three times i became an educator with a very wonderful uh color company called kevin murphy so you know i I really kind of used my anger and my drive to not let this beat me to some great things. And it's, but it's, it wasn't easy. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? What, what you can do when you put your mind to it. Um, yes. And that, that's incredible. So was your therapist with you during this difficult time? From the time that I chose sobriety uh, and at the very beginning, he and I were together for two and a half years. And that was every week for two and a half years that I would see him. Um, and, you know, I, we got to a point where I felt it, I was like the bird that was time for it to leave its nest. You know, I felt like Ben had given me all that I needed, you know, and it, be, it became very obvious because when we would come in and have meetings, we didn't really have those deep things to talk about anymore. It was kind of just like a refresher. And... It, he was always there for me and he was always a phone call away um and even you know when my niece died i did contact him but then soon after that i broke my leg so it was hard to kind of have therapy when you're dealing with all that sort of stuff so yeah. um uh at that point yeah i think it was just 
it was a lot of my anger. It was a lot of my just, you know, this internal fight that I had that all my life I've let people take from me or, or I've looked to drugs or alcohol to numb the pain or to escape. And I didn't want to escape anymore. I was tired of running from it. And either I was going to hit it head on and it was going to kill me or I was going to die trying because I couldn't do this anymore. I knew that if I allowed myself to go down the, the painkiller, because trust me, there were doctors that were like, what would you like today? And I would say, I would like to get out of your office before I ask for something that I'm going to regret. And, you know, when you look at my x-rays or if you saw me in a wheelchair, you'd be like, oh my God, you poor thing. And, you know, I would go to physical therapy um, and this was crazy and it happened so many times. I would go to physical therapy and because my leg was straight, you know, in an in a external cage, I couldn't bend it when I finally had to start walking again. So in order to bend it, your therapist had to physically bend it for you. So you were laying on your back and they would take your knee and your foot and they would push it into your chest. And I would literally hold on to the wall behind me and tears would come running out of my eyes. And he would say, well, next time you come in, double up on your pain meds. And I said, Ben, I'm not, or I'm just telling Matt, I said, I'm not doing any pain medication. This is Advil and just me. And I literally, it was funny, the respect that I got from my uh, local uh, other people that were going to physical therapy was like, how do you do that? And I just was like, I, I have nothing left to lose, you know? And that's and everything that's, to gain from it, really. Yeah, and th and that's the point that a lot of people get to in addiction. Obviously, you'd already started your sobriety journey, but when the pain of doing something outweighs the the growth aspects of it, then you that mindset is one of the most powerful things that happened to me as well. And that's this is amazing. You know, the other thing that I realized is that um, when my niece died. What it did to my family, um, it's hard to watch. You know, when you see people cry, you know, when they say, I, you know, when you hear people say, oh, I cried every day for a year. And you're like, yeah, you can't really, you, oh, I cried every day for a year. And I actually got to the point where I had to make uh, a joke out of it. And I said, if you see me walking a dog, you know, I would, obviously when I got further along, uh, with my therapy, if you see me outside walking a dog, don't don't stop because I'll probably be, be crying. And I learned how to allow myself to release that pressure before I would have to go to you know work or to, or be around people because it was in me. Like I just had to allow myself to feel those emotions. And um, the best way to do it was to schedule it, which sounds really kind of crazy, but that was uh, recommended, and I felt like that was the best way to handle it. And it's, it's because what, I, uh, whatever works for the person as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you really do have to ask yourself, you know, uh, there's, again, there's great programs and things, but what is going to work for me? You know, what is really going to be the best thing that's going to get me to, to my ultimate goal? And that was sobriety. Um, and, you know, I, I made peace with my niece's passing because I can't go back, you know, but I, you know, being in a tattoo shop, I had her name tattooed right there in my hand, oh. Roxy. And the reason that I did that was is because I wanted to remind myself that if I ever have a moment of weakness and I had a drink in my hand or a drug, I would see her name and it would remind me to be like, put that fucking thing down. I'm sorry for language. <laughs> put that down because, you know, yeah. it's, um, you know, that's not where you're supposed to be. And I, and I needed that visual memory uh, because at the time, I don't know if I was strong enough at moments. So, uh, but then life continued and, you know, as you do, you, you, you try to make peace with it. You try to find happiness. Um, you know, my main goal at this point, you know, after Roxanne died was uh, learning how to walk again, you know, without a limp and getting rid of my handicap sticker and all these things that, you know, maybe when I was younger would be cool to have, you know, you get great parking, but when you actually are physically handicapped and can't walk, you know, you do want to prove people wrong and show that you are strong and I am a fighter. And then, um, you know, in 2019, I got a phone call at 2.30 in the morning from my mother and uh, my brother who, he and I are 10 years apart and he's her biological child. Uh, I was adopted, he's biological. Um, he was staying with my mom, with my mother, she's 80. And uh, he'd stopped breathing. And she said that he, 
uh, was with an ambulance and she was in complete panic. And I thought, I'm, I'm in the twilight zone. Like, am I really here again? So I get into the car and we're driving to my mom's house, which is about 45 minutes, 2.30 in the morning. And I'm driving and I'm going, I can't believe it. Like, I just buried my niece, his daughter, like not even two years ago. My father, six days before her, like, what is going on? Like, how many tests am I going to have to be put through? And my mother lived in a cul-de-sac. So I pulled up and there's cops everywhere. And again, it's now three o'clock in the morning. My brain is twirling out of this. And um, I go to run up to the front door and I hear this gentleman say, Mr. Hornberger. And it was so formal that I was in shock. And I stopped and I turned around and I was like, what? <laughs> and it was a cop. And he says, uh, I need you to come here for a second. And I said, I need to get to my mother. And he goes, I need you to come here right now. And we're standing there staring at each other. My husband's here. And he said, um, I just heard from dispatch, your brother didn't make it. Do you want to tell your mother or do you want me to? And uh, I think I passed out for a second. And then when I kind of came to, I came up out of my body. And I don't know how else to describe it, but it's like when you go through extreme trauma, it's like you go into like an automatic mode and you're like watching it happen. So to tell your, your mother that her son is dead and mean it was the worst thing ever. And then we had to leave because it was a crime scene because my brother died in the house. He had um, sleep apnea and he did not have his machine on and he, he had fallen asleep after dinner and he choked is what had happened. And my mother witnessed this. And uh, so we had to leave and then we had to now go to the hospital and you know identify and see the body. And we had to do all these things and I'm going, like what this can't be real and now i am the man of the family I mean, not that i wasn't before but now i'm like the front of the line i've lost my father i've lost my niece i've lost my brother and my mother is 80 years old and it looks like i'm about to lose her too and uh yeah it was i was back in hell all over again and um then it was having to plan a funeral and then take care of my mother and see my family and and do all the things that are necessary but do it completely sober at the same time and all you want to do is run far far away but you have to be the ones to you know uh my brother was an organ donor you have to be there to answer all those horrific questions which are necessary but it's hard 24 hours after your brother died uh, you have to take care of your mother, who I later found out had pneumonia. And if it wasn't for me taking him to the doctor, she might have died of that. So it was really scary. Yeah. So Again. Um, from, from people that are listening, they're going to be going, sure. how have you not picked up a drink or a drug through all these things? What, what was it that just kept pushing you to stay sober and just get through these because they, they they are horrible no one would ever want to go through yeah. one or two of these things in a lifetime but to go through sure. so much as you've done because i you know sean i got to the point where i was like you know what bring it you know life is going to happen and i wasn't i wasn't going to fail like i have so much pride in my sobriety and i have survived you know, like I said, you know, the adoption stuff, the being raped multiple times, actually, when I was in my younger years, you know, going to bars and being put in situations or being drugged or being on drugs. You know, I fought and I've gotten through all of these different hurdles, huge mountains. And I'm not going to stop fighting, you know, and I think that's that's where my superpower came in. I was like, what else do you have at this point? You know what? I can... I can bury my brother, I can be there for my mother, I can pick up the pieces, you know, because, because I have to, because I can, because if I don't, I'll die, I don't know. It was just, it was that power within me that I was going to throw everything at it and I was not going to, like, I was just pissed off at this point. I was just mad. I was mad that I allowed alcohol and drugs to control my life for so long. I was mad that it took my niece. I was mad. They're just mad. So maybe anger was the, the answer that got me through it because, um, yeah, it was hard. It was really hard, actually. And if anger's the thing that got you through, anger's the thing that got you through. But the main thing is you've got through. So yeah. what what was what's life like now? Because I'm, is was that when your brother died? What what's happened since then? 
Uh, my brother died of March uh, 6, 2019. And, and everything uh, is for his memory. You know, um, my brother, he, you know, he had a lot of other issues. He was bipolar and he was also a recovering alcoholic and drug addict and he was sober for a number of years and I really admired my brother for that. Um, so, you know, I, I do things in their memory. I, I talk about them all the time. You know, I opened this tattoo shop uh, with my husband and a lot of help from friends and family. Don't think that I just did this on my own, but you know, it was things like I wanted to prove myself, you know, it's again, you know, we were in November of 2019 uh, I was, we wrote up a business plan. We wanted to do this. And as things started moving forward, then the pandemic happened and I was like, yep, there we go again. And at this point I'm laughing about it. Right. So because I'm like, of course, this is my life. Why not? Why wouldn't there be a pandemic during the time that I want to open a business? So I've started to kind of take my anger and I moved it into like comedy and humor because I've learned that, you know, it's just, I don't have the best of luck sometimes, but regardless, it always seems to work out in a crazy sort of way. And I can say that I'm sober during it, and I can say that I, I faced it head on, and that is something to be really proud of. You know, I think the main thing that I've learned out of this whole thing is, I live my life with so much guilt and shame and secrets, uh, whether it's because I wanted to make people like me or get along or to fit in, um, that I realized that I just have to be me. And either you like me or you don't, but, you know, I'm just going to keep going. And I have five amazing animals and a mother that I take care of every week. And we go to the cemetery and visit my brother. And, you know, I have a lot of responsibilities and I'm, I'm happy to take them. And I can walk around and do it, too. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> Honestly, so inspiring. But you being sober means you can do that for your mum, and you can go and yeah. visit your brother. Um, if you're not sober, that all goes away. Um, it all goes away. And it's amazing, everything you've done. Honestly, I think this is by far one of the most inspiring stories I've ever heard. Um, Thank you, Sean. Because the resilience you need to go through all of those traumas and still be sober, if there was an award for it, you would be number one because everyone's story is different, don't get me wrong. And I think the yes. solution is always sobriety. So the, the trauma is always very individual to that person, but dealing with it, going sober, and then bringing it up to the surface and dealing with it and then pushing on with your life is incredible. And that should be anyone listening, that is exactly the sort of place that in sobriety you want to get to because that's the superpower moment, isn't it? Yeah, it is a superpower. And you know, and it's, again, you know, I deal with social anxiety, you know, that is something that I, I will always deal with, you know, I'm the type of person that will think of, like I said, even with this meeting, seven reasons why not to do it. Um, so every day I, I struggle, I, I don't, I'm sorry, every day I deal with it. There's no more struggling. I don't struggle anymore. I just, I wake up and I make a decision that today is a good day and I'm going to be sober and, you know, like you had a bad weekend, maybe, maybe today I'm angry and, and I'm human, right? We, we have mo emotions. We're allowed to have those feelings. But it doesn't mean that I then have to turn around and try to control them with alcohol or drugs. Um, and you know, another thing, Sean, to be very honest, I am really lucky to be here. I mean, the things that I've put in my body and situations that I've been in, um, when I was uh, an addict and using, I am blessed to be here. So, you know, that also keeps me going. And I'm really honored and thankful that I had an opportunity to share my story with you because this is the first time anyone's ever heard it in, in its entirety. No one has ever heard it from start to finish. And not I'm even my family. Very grateful for you coming on and sharing. So, thank you. So personally as well, because this is the power of telling your story. Because your story might be the reason why someone gets the help that they need, and just yeah. trying to spread people's different traumas that they've gone through and the inspiring stories of recovery is to give people hope that you can go through everything that you've gone through. You can go through everything that someone else goes through, but there is still the chance that you can make the best out of your life because you've got yeah. two businesses now. Um, I have, well, it's a tattoo and piercing shop. So we yeah. just opened last week Love and uh, I also have a career as a hairstylist. So yeah, I have, 
I have a lot of I have a lot of things to be proud of. And another thing is, Sean, you know, in, in my uh, working with the public uh, and even with my husband, you know, my sobriety is not a secret. I tell everyone, you know, and sometimes it makes people feel uncomfortable. I, I can't help that. But this is my truth and my story. And through that, I've helped three people get sober. So, you know, if, if you know, your platform can even get my message out there further and help somebody else realize that, you know, it's okay to screw up. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to say, you know, I need help. There's no shame in that. The shame is uh, not asking for help, in my opinion. The shame is hiding in the closet or hiding in the shadows and, you know, uh, living with guilt. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful. You know, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy that I can be here and share my story with my unicorn heads. <laughs> <laughs> I'll also point out that he moved the photo of the half naked woman as well. <laughs> yes. Yes. I felt like that was, uh, that was appropriate, but yeah. Uh, brilliant. So actually just in terms of your, if you don't mind me asking about your social anxiety, because I think that's probably a good thing to talk about as well, because yes. as men, whether we're gay or straight or, or, or whatever the preference is, humans get social anxiety. So how, how would you deal with it? How would I deal with it? Um, it, it depends on the situation. You know, uh, whenever my husband and I go into a social gathering, um, we usually have some sort of like a, a code word or something that we, we have a plan, I'll be honest with you. And it's okay for me to step outside and take a minute. You know, um, I don't really do bars and clubs very much, uh, even before the pandemic. You know, I always feel like uh, when you're in a pub, you, I'm sure you probably are, know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, I feel that everyone kind of like moves like a school of fish, right? Oh, and when I'm, you're the, sober I'm person, the same. I'm the same with you. I hate that. I get social anxiety as well. Yes. And it's like if someone bumps into you or someone's like talking and maybe they just like my outfit or my tattoos because I have a thousand of them. But, you know, I would get self-conscious. So I think that I've just learned, um, you know, some places I don't really need to be. Some places just aren't my, for me anymore. You know, I... I um, I limit my, my friends and people that I, you know, hang out with, uh, you know, I have my animals that bring me a lot of joy. I work out every day, you know, that helps with anxiety. Wow. I wake up very stressed and it's like, I feel like a ball of nerves. And once I start like working out, you know, I have to do therapy for my legs still, because even though I can walk, I still have swell swelling and stiffness and issues. Um, so, you know, getting that kind of out really kind of helps me start my day. I think fit, fitness is a huge, huge thing. Like for me, when yeah. I came out of rehab and having to readjust and all for emotional regulation more than anything, um, yeah. because that was my way of dealing with sort of stress, anger. Um, and it's just a good routine to get into when, when you get sober. So that's what I, I try and push the fitness side of things. But it's, it's always difficult that's trying right. to say to people, you need to do fitness. It's very much a case of, give it a go and see if it helps, I guess. But also, you know, sometimes maybe it's, um, you know, art is also a good thing. You know, when I was laying in bed and I couldn't actually do any sort of like physical, well, I couldn't walk around for, to be honest, I couldn't move at all. Uh, art was something good for me. You know, it was just something that, that maybe you enjoy. Um, and also just kind of like telling yourself that it's going to be okay. You know, what is it that really get to the core of what are you afraid of? What is it, what anxiety are you faced? What is it that's making you anxious, really? Um, but you know, it's it changes. You know, it changes all the time. It's it's something that I know that I have to deal with forever. You know, and I work with the public, so standing in front of a, a client doing hair it gives me anxiety, which is kind of crazy to say because I've been doing it for so long. But you learn, you know, just like with anything else in life, that's difficult. You kind of learn ways to kind of deal with it, healthy yeah. ways, that is. And it's, it's good as well because you, you sound like you've got control on where your energy will be positive. Uh, so you manage that. And I'm, I'm similar in the fact that I won't go to places with people that I think are going to make me feel uneasy. That was well, social anxiety, yes. I guess. Yes. And that's, you know, and that's, you know, this whole like man up, you know, mentality that I grew up with, or, you know, just because you're male, you have to be macho or you have to be this, you know, I was never a masculine guy or definitely not a kid. I mean, I've always been a little bit more on the feminine side. And, and the reason really that I even started getting some tattoos is because I wanted to look tougher than what I was, but there's nothing wrong with the way that I am, you know? And I love that, 
this anti-bullying society that we live in now and accepting people for who they are, I think that's makes it a lot easier for youth now growing up, you know, that are different, or maybe they haven't figured it out yet. Maybe they're in the process. Um, or this idea that if you're a male that you have to like football and sports and be this rugged guy, you know, you can, you can be an artist, you can be whoever you want to be a dance. I mean, the only, it's like, it's, I felt like it was very, um, very boxed in of like growing up with me you know it's like if you're a guy you got to do guy things if you're a female you do female things and they don't cross um so i think now it's nice that it's it's a little lighter it's different yeah well shannon it has been absolutely inspiring having you on and i'm so grateful for you agreeing to come on and share for the first time so openly as well um, yes, thank you for having me, Sean. It was, it's been, um, it's been really nice. You know, I feel like this moment, I've been waiting for this moment for a while and it just felt right. So I'm thankful that it happened and I'm, and I'm happy that I'm happy to do it. And, and then again, if I can do it again or helping out in any way, you know, I will definitely be here because I don't want anyone to feel what I felt, you know, and if I can help one person feel that a little less or to realize that they're not alone, whatever the message is, I'm just happy to do it. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And just before we go, did you want to share your Instagram handle in case anyone wants to follow you? Sure. Um, we can do uh, Shannon Scissors, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-S-C-I-Z-Z-O-R-S. <laughs> Instagram. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, if I'm going to, might as well talk about my new tattoo shop. Definitely. Um, Electric Unicorn. Um, E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C. U-N-I-C-O-R-N, just like it sounds, Electric Unicorn, um, at Instagram. So, and yeah, check us out. such a cool name as well, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that was, hey, that's all my husband's idea. You know, I wish I, I wish I could take credit for it, but Electric Unicorn was definitely his, his baby. So, um, yeah, come see, and you can see what we did. We took a old convenience store from the 80s, and we turned it into a very uh, welcoming, inviting, creative space that, you know, as you can tell behind me, you know, Again, with my anxieties, social anxieties, I wanted to make sure that it was a space that people felt comfortable. And sometimes tattoo shops and piercing shops can be intimidating, you know? So I just wanted to make sure that we had a space where everyone felt welcome. So we did. So Brilliant. Pretty cool. Well, Thanks. all the best with that business. I've already looked at some of the t tattoos and they look amazing. So I'm sure you'll Thank be you. fine. Um, and that wraps up another podcast episode. So thank you very much, Shannon. And we'll, we'll keep in contact, definitely. Yes. Thanks, Brilliant. John. All right. Take care.